Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. All right, traders, I hope you're ready for this one. We have a really big episode in store, so let's get right into it. My guest this week has been labeled by Forbes as one of the most successful traders of the last 40 years. He was also profiled in Jack Schwager's The New Market Wizards. The man I'm referring to is Blair Hull. Prior to trading, Blair was a serious blackjack player for five years during the 70s. From there, he took his winnings to the floor of the Pacific Exchange to trade mispriced options and shortly after founded one of the world's premier market-making firms, Hull Trading, in 1985. At its peak, Hull Trading was active on 28 exchanges in nine countries. Then in 1999, the firm was acquired by Goldman Sachs for $531 million. Today, Blair is the founder of Hull Investments, which is the parent company of an actively managed ETF, Hull Trading Asset Allocation, and proprietary firm Ketchum Trading. Listening to this interview, you're going to hear more about Blair's career and his observations as a trader, why he believes great things happen in teams, and having an edge. Because like Blair says, if you're missing an edge, there's no reason to play. So here it is, folks. I'm Aaron Firefield, and here is my interview with a trader who I look up to and greatly respect, Blair Hull. I've got to say, before we go any further, it's such a huge honor uh, to have you here on the podcast. So thanks a lot for agreeing to do an interview. My pleasure. I'd like to get this underway by asking you about your first trading experience, which started at the blackjack tables. How did you get into blackjack? Well, my uh, brother-in-law used to go from San Francisco to Tahoe every weekend. Well, not every weekend, but say every six weeks or so, and, and, and he'd play blackjack. And he said that he paid for his vacation by going and playing blackjack. And I thought... This is ridiculous. This guy is an accountant. Uh, if he were really making money, he wouldn't be playing at the $1 table. He'd be playing at the $5 or the $25 table. And so I, I didn't, didn't really believe him. But I did read the book, Beat the Dealer, and I tried to use it, did it myself to some extent. Uh, and, uh, and I found that uh, there was an edge 
you could get an advantage playing blackjack. So uh, for the next five years, 1971 to 75, I played 50 days a year uh, in blackjack while I still had a full-time job. But every chance I had, I was in Nevada, either Reno, Tahoe, or Las Vegas. Okay, so what was that full-time job that you were holding down at the time? I was working at Kaiser Cement as a middle manager. I did have an MBA from Santa Clara University and was doing financial analysis for a cement company. Right, right. Okay. So would you mind telling us a little bit about the strategy that you were playing to win at Blackjack? And were you successful with this right away? Well, this is... um, there's a book uh, called Beat the Dealer by Ed Thorpe that was, it really came out of a academic article. Most things do come out of the academic world uh, that are substantial uh, in 1958. And then it was a hardback in book in 1962 and then a paperback in 1966. And this uh, gave a strategy and there have been, oh, I'm sure almost a thousand books written on blackjack since that time that... Uh, uh, people realized it was a, a winning game. And of course, with all good things, they do go away. The casinos learned how to counteract the players over a long period of time. It took them until uh, about the year in, into, the two, into this century for them to learn to counteract the, uh, the players to such an extent that it's, it's very difficult to beat the game of blackjack today, but still possible. There, there are some games that can be beaten. So when you were playing it, the, the strategy that you were that you were playing to win at blackjack, was this what you might call a foolproof way of making money? Like how great was your edge? Well, no, nothing's, uh, I, I wish there were something foolproof, but the best advantage you ever got was 51.49. That means there's a 50, you know, you had a 2% edge. Um, that means uh, for every $100 you bet, you'd win $2. Uh, but uh, it, it took uh, takes you a long time to get into the long run. Anytime you'd go up and play for a weekend, you'd play eight hours a day, two straight days, and you'd still have a only a two out of three chance of being a winner at the end of that weekend. So uh, this was a game of chance. Uh, to have and to having the odds in your favor was uh, certainly a game that I. I learned I wanted the odds in my favor, not in the game, in the odds of, 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 of somebody else. Now, if I were to play craps or play blackjack or play uh, the, the slot machines, the odds would be in the casino's favor. And uh, we're going to transition into trading and investing. And uh, uh, William Sharp at Stanford University, a Nobel Prize winner, defined a, an investment as a sacrifice of current consumption for expected future gain. Well, gambling is just a sacrifice of current consumption for expected future loss. Um, so we want the odds, we want the odds in our favor, but it's there's there's still whether the odds are in your favor or somebody else, there's still a lot of uncertainty. Okay. And did you ever consider what you were doing as gambling? Like most people think when they go to the casino, whether they win or lose is pretty much just sheer luck. Um, you know, because they are gambling. Did you ever consider what you were doing as gambling in the traditional sense? No, I do not consider gam. I, I consider myself as an investor. I'm not going to play with somebody that where the odds are in somebody else's favor. It's it's not. Uh, it's just not part of my. Uh, anytime I make a wager, whether it's on the golf course or wherever, I, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm. I must have the edge in my favor. Absolutely. 
Okay, so a little bit later on, I, I know that she became part of a blackjack team. I know this was a strategic move on your part. What were the advantages you saw from joining a team and playing blackjack? Well, I have a philosophy that all great things that happen in our world happen with teams, not with individuals. And I learned that at an early age with the blackjack team. The first thing that I did when I learned about the blackjack team is I met the founder and and then I had to go take some tests, some exams. Uh, one of the exams was you took a 52-card deck and you took two cards out and then he put a stopwatch and he said, ready, go. He wanted you to count the cards and to tell you what the last two cards were um, and be correct all the time. And so I had to be relatively fast. So I learned how to develop a skill of being faster counting the cards. The second thing I had to do is I had to take a basic strategy test. And that is what, what do you do when you know what the dealer has and you know what's your cards? And it's usually a, a multiple choice question, hit, stand, split, or double. And so I took that test and I got, I think I got 94 out of 100 right. Well, Blackjack really requires that you get all the answers right. You're going to give something back to the, you're going to give them an edge back to the casino. So the fact that we took exams and there were 10 different time tests in order to qualify for the exam led me to be a much better blackjack player than I was originally. Okay. Okay. And did the, one of the, one of the motives for joining a team was that you were able to get more bets on, um, you were able to play a, more hands and, and that sort of thing. Was that one of the reasons for joining the team as well? Well, certainly it did help to get uh, more money into action, more, more individual bets allowed you to get into the long run sooner. So that was an advantage. It was, that was part of it. Okay, excellent. So what was it that motivated you to up and leave the blackjack tables for the floor of the CBOE? Well, actually, uh, the team got barred. We all got barred in 1970, I guess it was 70, early 76. And so it was hard to get a game. And so, uh, but at the same time, I had been working on developing a model that would calculate the expected value uh, of an option. And I associated a probability distribution with the stock outcome. And then I calculated the net present value of the expectation. And that, that model actually converges to another model that was developed a, a year earlier called the Black-Scholes model. So I had developed something very similar that very close to the Black-Scholes model at the same time it was developed. So I had a value, I had a value for the option, and then I tried to buy under cheap options, and I tried to sell expensive options. That was the, uh, that was the strategy. Okay, and if you had to summarize it for us, what ways did, did Blackjack help you to prepare for trading? And why were you, actually you kind of answered that, I was going to ask you, why were you attracted to options markets over other types of markets? Well, the um, blackjack uh, in any kind of a game, any kind of a game, whether it's uh, gambling or investing or whatever you call it, there are two things you need. You need an advantage and then you need to stay in the game. And what blackjack taught me is that I had to bet 
in proportion to my bankroll. Uh, I had to bet in proportion to my advantage. If I had a, a big advantage, I could bet more money, but never more than one fiftieth of my bankroll. That was so. If I had a hundred dollars, I could never bet more than two dollars. So, so that's a pretty good rule. You think about it, you're going to go to the casino, and you have um, ten thousand dollars. The most you can bet is two hundred dollars, uh, or you will ruin. You, you will risk ruin you could you risk losing all your money so when you when you're playing a game whether it be trading or blackjack and you lose half your money you have to cut your bets in half and most people would try to go they'd try to get even but you have to do the opposite so i'd say staying in the game was the most important thing that i learned in fact i uh, you mentioned cboe i actually started on the pacific stock exchange where i leased a seat for $500 a month. Um, but I would go around and I'd have a, there would be an option that would be, the, all the public were going after this option. It was, you know, I had it worth according to my model of say 25 cents and it was selling for a dollar. And so I had sold maybe 200 of these options and I'd run around and I'd say, oh, that's such a juicy bet. And then I'd say, I'd look at, I'd look at the price again Oh, I got to sell some more of those. And then I'd say, I've already have that bet on the table. I could, I envisioned a, a, a stack of chips. <laughs> and so I couldn't, so uh, I wouldn't overbet. And so overbetting is the thing that kills you in any kind of game. You can have a winning strategy, but because of the way in which you wager, you can almost uh, be guaranteed to go broke. So that's, a, it's important is to, whether you have an advantage, how much you bet is as important of getting as getting an advantage. The models that you created, that you had calculated, did these set you up to be a, a profitable trader pretty much um, straight out of the gate? Well, um, I don't know if it's straight out of the gate. I think I remember I was down a thousand dollars. I had I went over with twenty. I took twenty five thousand dollars that I had won on the blackjack tables. This is in nineteen seventy four dollars. So you probably put about a almost a 10 on that, I guess, but um, 10 multiple on in today's dollars. I was pretty successful, fairly successful the first year, fairly successful. Um, yes, there were, at those days, options were mispriced and it was much easier to, to beat that game, much easier than it is today. Yeah. Can you just give us a bit of an example and kind of explain the idea about um, options being mispriced? Do you have like a, if some sort of a basic example to help us understand what you mean by mispriced? Well, um, one thing about options is that uh, they do tend to be overpriced. If there were a tendency for options at all to be priced, they're um, they tend to be overpriced because there are fewer people that can sell options. Everybody can buy an option because the clearing firm or the brokerage firm, Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley, they have to, you put a certain amount of money, let's say you put $10,000 into account. If you buy, if you pay for an option, you pay for it out of your account and you own it and you get the payoff after if you sell an option, you need a certain amount of collateral, but they have to keep track of the collateral and they won't let people sell options unless they have a fair amount of money in their account and they know what they're doing. 
So although it's a risky endeavor, selling options is definitely preferable to buying options as a general rule. So that would be one way of a mispricing of an option. Now, not all options are mispriced, but um, but if they're if they're mispriced, they they tend to be overpriced rather than underpriced. Right, right. So. Can you tell us a little bit about how you traded the 87 crash? I know this was a very big day for you. Uh, we made a significant amount of money as most people were losing a significant amount of money. Um, can you just give us a, tell us a little bit about that story? Well, the 87 crash, we had options on in all kinds of places. We, it was a, by that, by 1987, and I went down to the floor on, in, in 1977, uh, we had built an organization and had about 19 people working together. Now, I realize that I, I am a believer in teams, um, you, but I did start as an individual and then hired somebody and then we made a partnership. And um, so there were, uh, there was a team of us, 19 people in various positions. It was interesting that the Federal Reserve and the banks tightened credit at the worst time. They suddenly told everybody that they had to reduce their positions. Uh, so that put me in a position that I had to, we actually happened to be short the major market index, which was a mirror of the Dow on that day, on, on Tuesday when the market reached a low. And I had to go over to the Chicago Board of Trade because I was the only person that could actually trade on that seat. We least owned at least seats on the major exchanges. And so I was actually in that pit at that time. And um, it was interesting that the New York Stock Exchange, with everybody had panicked. They didn't know what to do. Um, and the Chicago Mercantile was going to halt trading. And I said, I was trying to figure out what happens on trading halts. And I finally said, told everybody that that's the culmination of panic after when they've halted. So we want to be long on the halt. And then I was in the right place at the right time when a firm that used to exist, Drexel Burnham, and they went out of business not too long afterwards, um, came to the floor and they used, the Chicago Mercantile had shut down. So the only place they were trading equities was the Chicago Board of Trade in this, in this major market index. And uh, they asked me where I would, where would I buy a hundred? They knew that I was the, I was a guy that was, was on both sides of the market. And I said, gave him a, a ridiculously low price and they said sold. He later sold me another 50 and there was the only 150 contracts that traded at that price. So I was in the right place at the right time. <laughs> so you bought those, I believe it was around about like two ticks off the lowest price. Was that right? I think that that is right. There was another trade. There was another small trade. There were 150 lots at uh, 285. There was a two lot that traded at... Uh, at uh, 287, and then there was some some trader 290. But uh, that's sort of interesting. Two ticks. Well, I was I it, that was the low price. The price that I brought them with a low price, and there were no other trades at that price. But I'm sure curious. How did you get that information? With two ticks off the low. He said two ticks. <laughs> no, it, it actually was the low. My 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 contract was. You said two ticks off the low. Where did you get that? Oh, okay. Oh, I must have misheard it or misread it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so it actually was the low price, 150 contracts was the low tech. So that was 87. In 85, you started whole trading, which I'm really keen to ask you more about. So how did whole trading come to be and what were your objectives for starting this firm? 
Well, it was an extenuation of my own trading. Normally on the floor of exchange, a trader would have clerks. And I actually had, uh, I had tried to build a computer system. I knew that things ought to be automated. Uh, and when I saw the exchanges and the first time I walked down, having been a computer programmer uh, before, having some programming experience, I should say, um, I knew that when I saw the floor of the exchange in 1976, I said, this place, my God, if I come down here, I better make a lot of money very quick because it's all going to be automated. Now, the direction of technology, I knew the direction of technology, but my timing was off by about 30 years. Uh, it took us until about the year 2000 to, to actually get automated options exchanges. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what were some of the things that you were doing at whole trading, which were very uh, unique and innovative for that point in time? Well, when we had a decision to make, we usually wrote an algorithm and and created a system that would execute that trade. Um, we did believe that everything that we were doing by hand could be done by a machine. And so we were, when exchanges, um, you know, we have the status quo at a lot of things, and it's hard to break the status quo when it was finally broken in about 1990. And um, in Germany, Germany actually had the first automated options exchange out of the Deutsche Termos Bureau which became Urex, and uh, they were the first ones to do it. And we were over there in Europe providing liquidity on those exchanges. So we learned, we learned in Europe. Okay, okay. Now, one of the things which I find quite interesting about whole trading, um, and I'm hoping you can share a little bit about this, is the type of people that you were hiring there. I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were sort of one of the first to employ, you know, your, your PhDs and mathematicians and those sorts of people over the traditional trader types. Um, what was your reasoning for this? Well, I had had a job in corporate America, so I looked at things as in, in from an organizational standpoint. Um, and we, we did um, believe that one needed an objective way of buying and selling things. You couldn't, uh, especially in the options market where everything was related. And so we had quantitative models that would tell us how to price the SPX options versus the NASDAQ options, say. Um, and, and so we needed mathematicians and computer scientists to not only come up with the algorithms that would give us fair values, to risk adjust those fair values and then automate that process to get those 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 prices to the traders and that took uh, it took a lot of uh, higher mathematics and uh, and computer skills to do that. Mm, okay, okay. Could you give us a little bit of insight to how you would describe some of the strategies that you were running there at Hull Trading? like maybe sort of the frequency, um, what sort of markets you were involved in, obviously options markets, but I know, I think you were in about nine different countries at the, at the peak. Just tell us a little bit about the type of strategies that you were running. Well, uh, most of them were, we were trying to buy undervalued securities and sell overvalued securities and, um, and stay as neutral as possible. We, we didn't, nobody liked risk, but our capital would swing significant amounts on any one day just because things became more mispriced or less mispriced. Um, 
so the strategies, uh, although we did do a lot of option strategies, and of course we hedged with the underlying instrument. If we'd sell calls on IBM, chances are we were a buyer of the stock or we were doing some other option to offset that transaction so that we would be relatively neutral IBM. But another strategy that we employed about 1998 19, somewhere in 1995, actually, was we bought and sold securities in a separate portfolio. So we were operating on, I think it was called the DOT system then, and so we automated a process. And we would do things like, uh, you might think of it as pairs trading, where you would buy one stock of Pepsi and sell Coke, or um, used to be General Motors and Ford, or it might be uh, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, uh, where we would. But what we did is we really took a security and we took the five most correlated securities and we built a basket. And then we, we'd say that this stock is going to follow that basket. So if that industry tended to go higher, we would tend to be a buyer of that, of that stock, et cetera. So we had a fair, we tried to fairly price securities and then we would, make a market around our fair value. Everything we did was to come up with a fair value and then put a bid and an offer uh, around that fair value. And never thinking that we were going one direction, but always being willing to go both directions. Okay. So Hull grew at an incredibly fast pace. Um, at your peak, how much volume did you account for in the various options markets that you traded? Oh, that's that's hard to, hard to tell. Um, I I do think uh, you know it, it. We were certainly large in Chicago. We were in Frankfurt, uh, London, Paris. Um, and we were in Tokyo. We we had a joint venture with Daiwa Securities, uh, which uh, was certainly interesting. Um, so it's it's hard to say. We did do. We were doing over one percent of the New York Stock Exchange stock buying. Equity volume, though, at that time, actually, and actually, one of the one of the firms we did trade with trade with a lot with was was Madoff, and this is with legitimate portion of their operation. Um, but Peter Madoff uh, and I were both served on the Cincinnati Stock Exchange board, and we found that uh, Peter and I didn't see the world in the same way. Um, he had a firm that. Uh, executed order flow for other people at various prices. And, and so sometimes he liked to trade them above the market or below the market. And we had an automated system that was uh, would provide bids and offers around what we considered a fair value. We didn't really care who we traded with. Well, Peter Maynard had this idea that he thought we shouldn't be in there <laughs> providing this liquidity and <laughs> we shouldn't be getting in the front of his trades. And I think I get one of my greatest compliments was that uh, Peter Mayhoff said, that goddamn guy Hull, he's cost me $250,000 a month. Got to get rid of him. <laughs> so it's my greatest compliment. I like world. that. That's funny as. <laughs> in 1999, you were acquired by Goldman Sachs. What was Goldman's motive for acquiring Hull Trading? Well, they saw the way the world was going. They couldn't compete um, with um, without an automated electronic market maker. 
uh, market maker that could analyze data and come up with fair values for securities so that they could trade them. They could uh, provide good liquidity for their customers and for others. Um, and they they saw that uh, they could they could build what we had. Uh, probably it'll take them about two years to get where we were, but by that time we'd be uh, 18 months ahead of them. So they just wanted to wanted to shortcut the process. Okay, okay. And what did they do with the firm um, following the acquisition? Well, the first thing they did, which was uh, really quite bright, um, they were um, they went on a hiring spree. There were 250 people in the firm when uh, I was, uh, when we sold. Within a year, they had 450 people. So what they did is they, they and actually Henry Paulson said this. He said, uh, I look at this as a DNA transfer. And what we're going to do is we're going to take your methodology and the way you look at problems and, and markets, and we're going to take that throughout our firm. And uh, so I thought that they were very effective in, in the way in which they hired and trained people. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Moving into current times, can you describe to us what is whole tactical funds? Like give us the rundown on what you're doing today. Well, one of the things, I, I talked about blackjack and I talked about option strategies. Um, I actually have been intrigued with the direction of the general market. And uh, I have felt that there's got to be some edge in whether the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 are going up or down on any one day. And not necessarily one day, but over a longer period of time and over multiple horizons. And I actually presented a paper in 1981 where I was on a panel actually with Ed Thorpe, who presented another paper. Um, but what my paper did, it talked about gambling and, the, and, and, and timing the market. And what I concluded was that gambling was, um, gave me a better return on my investment. Blackjack gave me a better return on my investment relative to risk. And options did the same thing. So for the next 18 years, I sort of, I sort of said, hey, timing the market isn't, isn't for me. But I returned to that. I returned to, to that strategy in about 2006. 
and was working on a very short-term strategy. Then in 2008, when the market collapsed, I said, I've got to have a systematic and disciplined way to deal with this. And that's when I started to, to really work to develop a, a strategy for uh, really timing, timing the market. So it's pure market timing. Can you, can you be on the right side of the S&P 500? Uh, and that's what the, um, the ET, Hull Tactical Funds is about and the ETF, which is uh, HTUS is the symbol and it's been operating for about a year. Okay. And that paper you referred to, I believe that's available online for everyone to see, isn't it? Oh, yes. We have a paper that is very transparent about our strategy and it's on a website called hullinvest.com um, or you can get it through the Social Science um, Research Network, SSRN, uh, and just Google Blair Hull. It's called a def um, Practitioner's Defense of Return Predictability. Okay. Well, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So um, you'll also be able to find a link to it there. The basic idea here is that there's this stigma against market timing, uh, whether it's uh, the Nobel Prize winners, everybody says Vanguard funds have been, ex they, they are created by the idea that you can't time the market and that timing the market is dangerous. Well, that may have been true up to about year 2000, but with this explosion of data that we've had uh, with gov new government data, the internet, even Twitter and social media, we now have a situation uh, where with new predictive analytics that it is now possible to time the market. Just as we have cars being driven by machine learning techniques, it's now that your portfolio should be driven by predictive analytics. So I just want to be very clear here. When you're talking about market timing, what does that actually refer to? You're talking about like buying the very bottom, selling the top. Like, could you just elaborate on what you mean by market timing, please? Um, what we believe is we believe that there is some optimal position of equities and cash that you should have every single day. And that comes out of a variety of information. So uh, what we do is we actually publish this an hour later. And one of the ways, if you look at hullinvest.com, you don't have to buy the ETF or all you have to do is copy our strategy because we give you what our optimal position. We have a short-term model and we have multiple long, we have a long-term model and multiple short-term models. And they, and we have a short-term adjustment to our long-term and we have a position every day. So you could, uh, you could just copy our strategy. That would be one easy way to do it. <laughs> okay. So this might be a bit of a, a newbie question, but what's the benefit of creating your own ETF? Like, uh, how do you make money from that? Like, how does that, how does that work? Well, there's, uh, uh, there's, there's a, um, a fee that goes along with e every ETF that you, you buy, even if it's the S and P 500, like the spiders have a nine basis point fee associated with it. Uh, so you're going to pay, uh, for every hundred dollars you have invested, you're going to pay nine cents a year. On that, and most fees, uh, most fees could go up to, um, they could be up to one and a half or two percent. the The fee for this fund is one base one percent, and that's ninety three basis points go to the people who put the fund up, put the ETF, and had the strategy, of which 
we get about two thirds of that because there's a variety of things that you have to pay for. Um, so it basically any any ETF that you buy, you're you're paying a an expense. There's an expense ratio associated with every ETF. Okay, that makes sense. That's something I was completely unaware of. So what are the securities that make up your ETF? Are they, I mean, really just cash and what is it, the S&P futures? It's, it's cash and either the S&P futures or spiders, the ETF, either those one or those two. And, and we may be long or short. The fund can go 200% long or it can go one or, or it can be as little as one. It can be 100% short. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, Blair, just for the later part of this um, of our discussion here, I'd like to get some guidance from you for upcoming traders. Now, one of the things you've kind of really, it's kind of been the underlying theme for our conversation so far, which I've noticed, and you've obviously talked about it um, in, in talks you've given in the past, is the necessity of having an edge and having an advantage whenever you come to you know, a game such as trading. What is your definition of a trading edge? My definition of a trading edge is that if you do this trade uh, multiple times, uh, you will come out on top. You will you end up making money. That's that's the definition. If you did this same kind of trade, whether it was with this chart pattern or with this relationship of these things, and you did it hundreds of times, in the long run, you would have more money than you started with. That's my de- my definition of, a, of an edge. So if a trader feels as though they do not have an edge, right? And, and that's a problem that, and it's a reality for a lot of traders coming into this business is that they do not have an edge. What should they do in an attempt to try and get one? Like where's maybe the, I don't know, where should they even start? Like, do you have any advice? I know it's a bit of a, a difficult question, but do you have any uh, any advice that might point them in the right direction for where to look for an edge? You're probably not going to like this answer, but if you were to go to a casino, let's talk about going to a casino and you didn't count the cards. So you're not going to play blackjack, but you can play roulette. Uh, you can play uh, craps. You can play, uh, um, oh, I don't know, baccarat, poker, uh, but you didn't have an edge. So that means that every Every hundred, all you got to figure out is that for every hundred dollars, I bet how much am I going to lose? Am I going to, am I going to come out? And and uh, because you're going to you, and that's your disadvantage. So if you have a disadvantage of all the games you're going to play, my recommendation is that if you're an investor, and that's what I am, I would not play. I'm not going to play if I don't if I'm missing an edge. There's no reason to play. There's no reason to play. There's a reason to give other people money. I mean, if you get some joy out of it, if you, if, and that's where gambling comes in. There's some joy. People, people enjoy the, the fluctuation. It's a fun game. It's a fun game to do it, but not for, you don't do it for financial reasons. It's only going to hurt you financially if you don't have an advantage. We're doing that. We, we have a proprietary, I have a proprietary trading. We have the, the ETF, which we hope has an advantage. And we, but we trade, we have a proprietary trading system that has servers. We do things with computers. We have computers that trade. We don't have people that trade. And these, we have 25 different servers at Aurora at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Well, each of those, and we're trying to figure out did this server and this strategy lose its edge? Because we have 
our capital fluctuations go up and down, we probably do any any on each one of these servers. We do anywhere from a oh a hundred trades to two thousand trades. I would think on these each of these servers, well, maybe could be up to oh we could do we could do we could do four thousand trades on one server, sure, easily. Um, and uh, we're evaluating those trades. We look at the trade from the time when we transact it, and we look at the P&L one minute later, five minutes later, and an hour later. And then, of course, we look at and then, then we look at it at the end of the day. Uh, so each of those trades are sort of marked out in the future. So and then we go back and do a, a postmortem to say which trades were effective and which weren't. Um, so we're always worried that our strategies are losing an advantage. In fact, you you should assume that whatever trading system you have, the profitability is going to go down because somebody's going to discover that, and they're going to they're going to they're going to take part of the action. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is something I want to ask you about. Is um, you know you can almost be quoted as saying you need to be systematic. It may seem obvious to you why there's a need to be systematic, but would you mind explaining for uh, anyone listening to this podcast why you believe there's a need to be systematic in your trading approach? Let's see. I keep, I keep going back to the game of blackjack because you count the cards and you, if you have a positive count, that means the odds are in your favor. So you'll bet some money during that time. If it's a negative count, you bet as little as you can. So we just read... We try to determine what our advantage is, and we bet in proportion to that advantage um, in a systematic way, in a disciplined, systematic way. Um, you, there's so much randomness that occurs in the marketplace. You've got to re reduce, <laughs> reduce the randomness to any extent you can, and doing it in a systematic way is the only way that I know about of getting more consistency, we want to get we want consistent profits, and those are those are hard to obtain. So we want to remove as much randomness as we can, and by being systematic, that's that's a really great answer, Blair. I like how you describe that as removing randomness from markets um, or from your trading as much as possible. Um, when you're evaluating a strategy, what are the most important performance metrics uh, which you give the highest value to? Well, there are all kinds of things. There's the return per trade and the return on capital and the hit rate. What percentage of the time are you correct? Um, there's down, you know, how much time, time underwater. I love that one. That one, that's time underwater. There's, um, there's maximum drawdown. I mean, there, there, you could go on and on. You get these reports of the strategy from a money manager. He's got, he's got 26 different managers measures. And so, the one, and some of them, some people say um, there's a sharp ratio, which is the return divided by the standard deviation of return. And there's a Sortino ratio, which says it's the return, but it only takes the standard deviation of the downside of, of when you lose money. Um, I'm real simple. I just take the return divided by the standard deviation of the returns and annualizing that number, the sharp ratio. And sharp ratios over two, I like. And sharp ratios under two, I, I will take sharp ratios up above one. I'll take sharp ratios above one. I don't like sharp ratios below one. Okay, so a sharp ratio less than one. If anyone is trading a strategy with a sharp ratio less than one, you would sort of uh, discourage that? 
I'm not very I'm not very excited about those. Okay. Uh, of course, if you combine a lot of sharp ratios of one, you can get sharp ratios of two or three. And um, you know, we have a trading firm that, of course, it's it's got lots of servers and all kinds of overhead. But you know, it's there are many traders that have always their entire life they've traded with sharp ratios over ten. Over ten. Over ten. Yes. That's yes. huge. Now, the problem is they have all kinds of costs associated with that. And a lot of this requires those servers at the Chicago Mercantile I was talking about. Those are, those are pretty expensive. You know, it's costing, costing us, I'm sure, I don't even know what our bill is over there, but it's, I'm sure it's 50000 to 100000 a month. Wow, okay. So, in your personal opinion, young traders coming into this business today, where do you believe they should be focusing their efforts? Well, I think... Um, I'm assuming that they have a good education. I'm assuming they have a, at least an undergraduate degree and that they've taken some quantitative courses in their math and um, they've taken a, they've at least gone through calculus in there. Um, so I would say they'd concentrate their efforts in making sure they're up to date on new techniques. Uh, I did go to graduate business school, but they're also, they're now, quantitative finance programs all over the country. There must be 30 of them, um, which uh, are master's degrees in, in financial engineering. Um, there's a, I would also be, I'd make sure that they, at the earliest possible age, that they pick up a computer language and Python or R would be the languages I would recommend that they code in. Uh, if you don't code in a language, you don't get in our door. Um, there's no question about it. you don't even you don't even apply for a trading job unless you uh, can program and uh, well in in one of those two languages. Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting point you make there, uh, Blair. So if someone is very efficient in one of those languages you mentioned, I believe it uh, Ketchum Trading R is the the language that you focus on there. If someone is very efficient in R, let's say, but has no trading experience, are they someone who you still may consider for a position with you? Uh, we we might do we we would do we might do that. Uh, they would they would be up against some other top competition with somebody that uh, probably without a master's and master's degree in finance or some experience. If they were just an R programmer or Python, now we might take a C plus plus developer who didn't have, we might, we might do that, but certainly the financial engineers would have to have some either education or experience in the financial markets. Okay, sure. Very good. So uh, just one last question before we close this out. Do you believe it's become harder for traders to make money in the past 10 years or so? And if that's the case, do you think it's going to continue to get harder for traders to make money in these markets? Well, I um, have this idea that uh, markets do, uh, it's just water seeks its own level and, and um, um, markets are meant to be more efficient every day. And so that means that no matter what you do, your, your edge is going away a little bit each day. And that it really takes, uh, but there are tremendous opportunities in quantum breakthroughs in doing things that people have not thought about before. So uh, I do think there are tremendous opportunities at the same time. 
whatever strategy you have today is going to be less profitable tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Well, Blair, it's been incredible having you on the podcast. Uh, once again, uh, thank you very much for doing this. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and share a lot of your insight with uh, everyone who's listening to this podcast right now. So where can listeners go to find out more about you? Well, um, hullinvest.com is the, is the website that we have that where the there's inf- more information on the ETF, the Exchange Traded Fund, HTUS. And to, uh, there's also, there's a, the, read the paper. It would be interesting for you to read the paper, Practitioner's Defense of Return Predictability, and then take the quiz that is on the, uh, on the website. There's a quiz, uh, that will test your knowledge of, um, predicting the market. It's all about, it's all about education. And that quiz is on the Hull Invest website? Hullinvest.com, yes. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's been a huge honor. Let's speak soon. Very good. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.